Well, good morning, and we want to welcome you here via live stream or in person. I'm glad to see you. You know, it's actually really cold in Red Deer right now. Uh, somebody said it was the coldest spot in the province. I don't know about that, but it sure felt that way. When I drove here, it was still dark outside, and all I could see was fog, and now we see ice crystals, so it is a little nippy here. Well, we want to welcome you here this morning. I want to just mention, uh, for those of you that are musically inclined or technically inclined and like to be involved in an exciting aspect of ministry, we have a great music department in our church. We have great technicians. We do have camera crews. And what we want to do is invite you to join our team. And how do you go about doing that? And here's how we're going to do it. We're going to do that a couple times a year. We're going to call them the Worship Together Night. And what it is, it's an opportunity for you to... Uh, it, not necessarily an audition, but an opportunity to come and be a part of that evening, bring your instrument. We're going to learn some new songs that night. Uh, so it's not a worship night in the sense that people are coming to worship. It's a, it's a night in which you're coming to learn how to lead in worship, how to uh, be an instrument person, how to maybe be a sound tech on that evening. And that'll be on March the 1st at 6.30 to 9.30. So it's a long night of practice and development. And so we get to meet you, and this is a way to break into our uh, music program and technical program area in our church. So if you're interested, please sign up on the website by February 19th because they're going to send music uh, your way. Okay, does everybody understand what we're doing there? So it's not a night you come and will go, oh, this is an extra worship night. No, it's for you to participate in the music department. You have a musical skill. Maybe you're a vocalist or you have a musical ability, um, play an instrument, or you want to be involved in cameras or uh, sound and all the rest of the stuff we're doing here. That's what that evening is about. Well, I'm going to have a stand this, uh, this morning, and we're going to go to the Lord in prayer. And uh, we're going to continue our series in the book of Proverbs. We're, we're running out of chapters. Everyone goes, thank you. It's been an interesting journey. We're in chapter 28, and we're going to look at the whole chapter here this morning. So, Father, I thank you that you're going to speak profoundly, powerfully into our lives as we're going to look at the contrast between the way of people who fear you, love you, walk with you, walk in wisdom, walk in understanding, and those who are walking in their own understanding have not responded to maybe as of yet and uh, are struggling with different issues in their life, like we all struggle as human beings. But we're going to recognize today that there are two pathways. And there's one that you're lining out for us. It's a way of wisdom. And that's the path that I pray all of us choose. And when we falter and fail from that path, that we will confess and renounce that uh, another way of living and respond to you and walk in your way, Father, because it ultimately is the most exciting, dynamic life possible. And I just pray today that you would speak into all of our lives uh, and help us to understand these uh, great truths from your word. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, it's interesting that... Um, some people will do crazy things for a little bit of money. How many know that's true? You know, and you, you can see that. I mean, you know, for the right price, people do crazy stuff. But it's not just um, the vilest of people who do the wrong things. As a matter of fact, in extreme situations, people will do extreme things. Does anybody know that's true? And so often when we look at that, we always think and blame it on the circumstance. You know, if we've ever had a moment in our life where we've really faltered because of a difficult, challenging thing, we could easily say, well, you know, I wouldn't have done that but for this reason. But what I want to say to us 
this morning is that really all of the context that we're in, all the challenging places, is actually an, an expose. It's, it's actually exposing what's really going on the inside of our soul. And many of these things inside of us are totally concealed to us. And I'm going to paint a picture. I know it's a little bit of a terrible situation. But in the book of Lamentations, it's actually in the Bible. It's right behind the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah writes five chapters. It's called a lament. He's sorrowing over what is about to happen or what just happened to the city of Jerusalem. Now, for hundreds of years, God's people had been disobeying God, had been ignoring God, and God had sent prophets to speak into their life to turn them back towards the ways of God, but they had not listened. And so God said, I'm going to remove you from the land. I'm kicking you out. I'm, you know, in a sense, God was, it was kind of a divorce. God was divorcing the people because they were violating his covenant agreement. And he had warned them in the book of Deuteronomy that if they continued to do that, he would eventually banish them from the land. And that's exactly what happens in the Babylonian captivity in 586 BC. Now, what's interesting was that there's always been false prophets. Actually, there's probably more of them than the real ones. And the false prophets kept saying, hey, don't worry about these Babylonians. Even though they surrounded the city and they're besieging our city, don't worry. We're gonna, God's going to deliver us supernaturally. And by the way, historically, God had delivered the city and God had rescued them. So they had a historical basis to make that argument. But at this point, they had been so rebellious against God and God's spokesperson, in this case, Jeremiah, was warning them, don't fall for these guys, you should actually surrender to the Babylonians because God is actually dealing with us and you, you guys keep rebelling and this is going to turn out poorly. And the city was under so much uh, pressure uh, that it was besieged by this army and they refused to surrender. They were listening to the false prophets that they would be delivered by God and now the city was suffering extreme food shortages. Now, most of us have never had that experience in North America. I think other parts of the world have suffered extreme food shortages. This extreme situation can bring out the worst in people, and it did in this case. And in the book of Lamentations, he writes these words of the indifference and callousness that the heart had, and just the whole level of trying to survive. It's amazing what people will do trying to survive and just try to live. It says, even the jackals offer their breasts to nurse their young, but my people have become heartless like ostriches in the desert. In other words, they're indifferent to what's going on here. It says, because of the thirst, the infant's tongue sticks to the roof of its mouth. The children beg for bread, but no one gives it to them. In other words, the neediest in the population were now dying and begging for food, and people were just turning their back on them. Verse 9, he said, those killed by the sword, he said, are better off than those who will die of famine. Racked with hunger, they waste away for lack of food from the fields. And then the very next verse, and I remember reading this uh, a year or so ago, and it hit me with such impact. It says, with their own hands, compassionate women will cook their own children who become their food when my people were destroyed. What was going on is that they were actually eating their own children. Now, you know, we ever think that that's a disgusting thing, and obviously in a civilized world, we would think that's terrible, but there have been even things in the modern world where people under extreme situations have eaten each other to survive. And I, it just gives you a little bit of an insight into the human heart. 
I, I would say this, that human beings can do some of the most amazing, good, wonderful, kind, generous, self-sacrificing elements. Isn't that true? How many know that's true? People do that. But on the other side, people can do the most inhumane, the most cruel, the most vile, the most vicious things you can ever imagine. And so we recognize there's this huge swing on how people respond to people in life. We recognize that that's true. And here in uh, Proverbs chapter 28 and verse, uh, we're going to look through all of these chapters. We're going to talk about the people who actually have a fear of God inside of them and who are walking in wisdom, who do the right things and who please God. And then you have the contrast are people who have no thought for God, have are indifferent towards God, don't believe in God, are leaning to their own human understanding, doing their own thing. And he begins to portray that these people who lack a fear of God are described as people who are foolish and actually will end up doing things that they will not be happy with themselves for doing. And that's what we're going to take a look at this morning. Matter of fact, Proverbs 28, 21 says, To show partiality is not good, yet a person will do wrong for a piece of bread. Um, and we just painted that picture. People will do the wrong thing just to survive. And we see that. And many people who have struggled with addictions have done some terribly criminal things because the addiction was driving them to make very short-sighted decisions. Matter of fact, people have stolen from people they love because they had to feed their addictions. People have robbed people just because their addictions were screaming to them and they did these things. I'm just pointing out to us that we can actually do the wrong thing. So to pervert what is right for very little benefit speaks of the issue of moral bankruptcy. And if we're going to live in a healthy society, there's a desperate need to have certain values at play in the culture. Isn't that true? And when we lose these kind of values, we're in trouble. As a matter of fact, when we lose values like integrity, honesty, and fidelity, we find that life itself becomes diminished, demeaned, and actually despised. And we move from a culture of life and value and enhance and enrichment to a culture that, you know, uh, validates death, speaks of the value of death, moves towards death and diminishment. And we're living in a culture today that's moving in that direction. And every one of us can see that that's happening. People no longer in these cultures find meaning and purpose, joy, or hope, but they begin to simply struggle, and survival becomes the name of the game, and eventually people say, I'm tired, or, tired of surviving, I'm checking out right now. And we're living in a culture today that we can actually legitimately, legally check out what we want to. That's where we're at right now. But now in Proverbs, we've been looking at these two paths, and the reason why it's been so important that we've looked at the book of Proverbs is because in our culture today, we're given the idea that there's so many alternatives, when in reality, there's only two. And Jesus talks about it in the Sermon on the Mount. He said there's a narrow path and there's a broad road. And there's a lot of people on the broad road, and it all leads to the same place. Even though people will tell you there's many, uh, many uh, ways to do things, but the broad road, Jesus points out, leads to destruction. The narrow path, which seems to us to be the difficult path, the, more, the, the less traveled path, is the one that leads to life. And that's what we're talking about here. How to walk with God. How to live in wisdom. How to do the right thing. How to live in the right way. How to experience uh, the things that God wants for us in our lives. So we're going to take a look today at three realms that are going to contrast the life between those who are wise and those who are foolish, or those who are righteous and those who are ungodly, or not like God. Those that are godly or like God are those who are ungodly, which means unlike God. 
So we're going to take a look at these three realms. And so the first realm we're going to look at is in the, in the realm of leadership. And leadership and followership, if I can say it that way. So good character is critical in the formation of a godly leader. How many say that's important? As a matter of fact, when I'm reading in the book of Ezra, I find out that Ezra not only studied the law, but then he began to practice the law before he began to teach the law. It's really critical if we're going to be communicators uh, like, you know, we study and we don't just teach. There's a missing ingredient. We have to be doers before we can actually be communicators of that truth. And I think culture listens to people who they see living with authenticity when we're speaking of truth. And sometimes in our haste in our culture to explain the truth to our culture, we're busy telling them the right thing, but we're not necessarily doing it ourselves. And how many go, that's problematic? That's a word we people say, well, I just see a bunch of hypocrisy. And they don't see authenticity. So it's very important we get this important step in play. Not only do we learn what God wants us to do, but we begin to practice it. As people begin to see it in our lives, we now become like a light to people. They can see how to live this life. We're not just telling them how. We're showing them through our own lifestyle. And people who are morally corrupt bring disintegration into the lives of people they lead. How many know that's what happens? Matter of fact, leaders, I would argue, set the moral tone of the people they're leading. They really do. Leaders help guide people towards what is right or towards what is wrong. I think that's true of parents because they're leaders. They're either guiding their children towards what is right or what is wrong. We could keep going down the list, you know. Uh, Obviously, in a church, it's important that the pastor be a godly person. How can you lead people toward the right end if you're not practicing it yourself? How critical is that? You know, we've been looking in our culture. If we're going to have good leaders, we're hoping to have people have moral integrity. We're hoping people that are going to be authentic. We're hoping that people are going to be the kind of leaders that will help uh, serve the constituency in which they are leading. But when we look at the Bible, we find, especially in the southern kingdom, Leaders who were godly, who helped lead the nation to godliness, and we saw leaders in the Old Testament who were ungodly, and the people followed the leaders into ungodliness. So it's very important that leaders set the right tone. Listen to what it says here in Proverbs 28 and verses 2 and 3. When a country is rebellious, it has many rulers, but a ruler with discernment and knowledge maintains order. A ruler who oppresses the poor is like driving rain that leaves no crops. Richard Clifford points out the irony in the verse 2. He says, the paradox that rebellion, far from doing away with rulers, actually multiplies them by introducing new factions or ensuring a succession of leaders in unstable times. Interesting. In other words, when things aren't going good, you have a lot of leaders. And a lot of them are not very good leaders or very strong leaders. It's a very unstable situation. And, you, and he says sometimes it's created by the proverb here says because the country's in a state of rebellion, it's hard for them to settle down and just have some good structure and order and all the rest of it. Tremper Longman says it this way. Basically, the point is that the offense of a land will lead to a proliferation of leaders. That means many, which is not a good thing. 
Long-lived benevolent rulers are the best circumstances for a nation providing security. The offense may well be a rebellion which itself would inject instability into a country. The many leaders point to a fragmentation of a previously united land or perhaps to a succession of leaders as they are violently jockeying for power. So what is being suggested here in verse 2 is the need for a wise and discerning leader who can distinguish between what is right and what is wrong. You know, that's a very powerful thing. Matter of fact, when we read in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, it talks about mature people have the ability to distinguish between what's right and what's wrong. That's part of maturity uh, in life, to, to be able to distinguish. And today, I think it's getting more difficult for people to distinguish between what's right and what's wrong. How many know what I'm talking about? Because I think our culture is making so much noise, and many people in the church are now embracing what the culture is saying rather than what God's Word is saying. And so now we're actually being swayed by the culture. So the church now is being influenced by the culture rather than the uh, the church influencing the culture. And that's the right order. You and I are set the tone, set the standard for our, our nations, our countries. Um, in verse 3 here, we see, um, uh, when, oh, let me put it this way. Uh, when leaders gain power to enhance or enrich themselves at the expense of people, in verse 3, it says they're like a driving rain. It says they serve... I think they, they need to help. They, they actually help create the context of instability in the land when they're just doing it for themselves. In verse 3, it says, the tyrannical leader exploits those they should be helping. As, as a matter of fact, they're described as a driving rain. Now, how many know rain is actually something that's usually beneficial for crops? But when you have a driving rain, it's actually detrimental to crops. And that's what he's trying to bring out, this little metaphor. And so what is the role of leadership? It's to lead for the benefit of and not the expense of those they lead. That's true leadership. Whatever realm you're leading in. You know, if you're a leader, you really, Jesus tells us you're a servant. And true leadership, the gift of leadership is the ability to serve other people for their benefit, not for yours as a leader. You're doing it for others. You know, there needs to be that concept of leadership that has to happen. It says here in verse 28, verse 10, whoever leads the upright along an evil path, sometimes leaders do that, they're going to fall in their own trap, it says. But the blameless will receive a good inheritance. And so we see a law of reciprocation right here, the sowing and reaping idea, this retribution. You know, you do the wrong thing, eventually it catches up to you. And we need to recognize that. So God is looking for those whose lifestyle here is described as blameless. They're doing the right thing. It doesn't mean they're doing everything perfectly, but they're doing the right thing. Blessings actually flow from godly leaders. It says here in Proverbs 28, 12, when the righteous triumph, there is great elation. But when the wicked rise to power, people go into hiding. Wow. You know, along with that verse, Verse 28 in the same chapter says, when the wicked rise to power, people go into hiding. But then it adds this little clause. But when the wicked perish, the righteous thrive. So whoever's in, you know, whoever's dominating the realm of leadership is having an influence in that situation. And so when, when, when the ungodly people come to power, you know, it says a lot of people just get out of the way because they know bad things are going to happen. You know, they just, they're just trying to stay off the picture and hope that that, 
that situation will come to an end. Robert Alden says it this way. A strong, stable government ruled by honest leaders is a wonderful blessing. How many say that's so true? Isn't that true? That's what we all want, right? You know, far too many people in this world labor under the tyranny of unjust rulers. And that's true around our world. And there's a lot of exploitation going on. Perhaps those who go into hiding when wicked men reign are doing the wisest things, according to Robert Alden. In other words, they're getting out of the way. And he says it this way. They hope that the seeds of the regime's undoing, which it carries within itself, will soon germinate, sprout, and affect its overthrow. In other words, how many know that if you're perpetrating evil, eventually you will be overtaken by the evil in which you're, you're doing? Eventually you're destroying yourself and you don't even realize it. But sometimes it takes time for that to happen. That's the big challenge, isn't it? Let me move on here. Uh, continue on here. Proverbs 28, 15, and 16. Like a roaring lion or a charging bear is a wicked ruler over a helpless person in, or a helpless people. Those are two pretty significant animals, right? Can you see this? A uh, roaring lion is creating fear, charging bear. That's pretty a terrorizing experience. Verse 16, a tyrannical ruler practices extortion, but one who hates ill-gotten gain will enjoy a long reign. And so the wisdom writers are pointing two highly different dangerous animals who are attacking their prey as a picture of what it's like to be a people being oppressed and tyrannized by their own leader. Okay, let me move on to the second realm. You know, that was not... Those are a lot of verses that covered that element. But the second area is in the realm of finances. You know, it's interesting. The wisdom writers actually are not opposed to wealth, uh, but rather trusting in wealth. Okay, let me say that again. The wisdom writers are not opposed to wealth, but they're opposed in trusting in wealth and how you secure it, if it's gotten properly or not. Okay, so they're going to they're gonna focus in on what are you putting your trust in? And number two, how did you come about getting the wealth? Those are two important questions. They're, they're warning against get-rich-quick schemes and the exploitation of other people in order to enrich oneself. They're against these verses. So it's better to be poor and godly than rich and ungodly. And some of you are thinking, why can't we just be uh, godly and rich? Well, we can be. But that's... That's, uh, but if you're going to choose one or the other, if you had to make a choice, be godly or be rich, what the wisdom writers are going to argue is be godly. Better to be poor and godly than to be rich and ungodly. It's just a proverb. It's a better than proverb. And, he's, and, he, and he says it there. Oh, okay. Put the slides in the wrong order there. Okay. Okay, Proverbs 28, 6 says, Better the poor whose walk is blameless than the rich whose ways are perverse. And then in verse 8 it says, Whoever increases wealth by taking interest or profit from the poor amasses it for another who will be kind to the poor. So what we need to realize is whoever takes advantage of people and does it, and one of the things that the, the law basically spoke against was the taking of interest on the behalf of the people that you know that you were with in community in covenant with and so there was the, you know the old testament spoke against that now isn't it interesting that even though they had the law and you read the old testament 
how many recognize that probably the biggest problem is people don't always do what they're supposed to be doing? Even though people know what's wrong, they don't always do what's right. And so often when the, when the, when the moral, what I'll call the moral climate of a country goes down, more people do what's wrong. It just seems to, you know, facilitate that. That's what begins to happen. And so that happened too to the people of God in the Old Testament. They began to break the law. And then you have prophets coming on the scene. And what are prophets are doing? They're kind of like God's uh, prosecuting attorney. They kind of stand up to the nation and go, you guys are breaking the law. You guys are doing the wrong thing. And they're trying to call people back to doing the right thing. Now, this is so amazing to me. We know that it was wrong for them to take interest. So what's happened? They've gone into exile. We've talked about that already. They went to Babylon. Now God brings them back into the land. How many know after you've been humble like that, you think, okay, I'm getting it now. Uh, how many have ever had that experience where you've done the wrong thing, you've suffered the consequences, but now you've gotten right with God again? Anybody had that experience? Anybody gone through that cycle? I think we should all say, my hand is up. You know, it's called, you know, I figured out I did the wrong thing. I'm repenting and I'm going to do the right thing. You think after doing the wrong thing, they'd get it right. But here's Nehemiah. He's trying to rebuild the walls. They're kind of in this crucial moment. He's the governor of Judah. Uh, the Persian king has sent him to, to the land. Nehemiah's asked to go rebuild the walls, you know, restore what had been destroyed before by the Babylonians. And what, what did the Jewish people do to themselves? In chapter 5, you have this interruption in building the wall because some of the nobles and officials were charging interest to the poor people who were already heavily under taxation by the Persians and therefore were you know, selling their children to pay for the debt and all kinds of crazy things. So here's chapter 5. I'm giving you the context. He says, now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. They were saying, hey, listen, we're your brothers. Why are you doing this to us? In verse 6, it says, Nehemiah says, when I heard of their outcry and these charges, I was very upset. He was angry. Because you see, Nehemiah was serving at his own expense while these other people were trying to take advantage of the poor people and enrich themselves at their expense. And Nehemiah just came unglued. And in verse 7, he says, I pondered them in my mind, and then I accused the nobles and officials, and I told them, you're charging your own people interest. So I called them together to a large meeting to deal with them. And he basically said, you're going to give that money back, or you know what, I'm going to excommunicate you from being in covenant community with us. And so they relinquished and gave back the money. It was a, kind of a crisis situation in a very challenging moment. Riches can blind us also to our true spiritual condition. I think this is probably the greatest challenge in North America because we've been so affluent. It says here the rich are wise in their own eyes. And one who is poor and discerning see how deluded they are. So one of the challenges is when we do have affluence, we don't put our trust in it. You see, and that's been what's been happening in North America. We have never been as affluent and so what's happened is in North America, people are trusting in finances. And so, you know, what's really been tragic, and, I, and I've been, a, you know, living in our country for all these years, I've noticed all of the elections, the main issue has always been economics. It's all about the money. How many know what I'm talking about? We never get to talk about, I think, some of the more significant and important issues because we're so caught up with the money. It's all about the money. You know, or how are we going to get the money? Or, you know, who's going to give us the money? It's all about that. And yet, the rich people rarely can see their true condition. 
And the classic example is found in the book of Revelation. And in the church that Jesus is speaking to, the church of a city called Laodicea, it was a very affluent community, and it was a very affluent church. And Jesus is speaking to the, to the angel, to the pastor, who's going to give the message, Jesus' words. He says, these are the words of the amen. It's the name of Jesus. He's the, he's the, uh, the ultimate, the faithful, the true witness, the ruler of God's creation. <clears throat> I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I've acquired wealth and I do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. How many think that's kind of sad? Their assessment of themselves was totally off. How many think that might be a little scary if that if your assessment of your condition is totally different than what Jesus' assessment is of your condition? How many of us a little bit of a problem? Can anybody see that? You know, I think I, I'd rather have God tell me what he really thinks, you know, rather than what I think. And if it's not the same, that's bad news. And basically what Jesus was saying here, he's using some pretty powerful imagery here. You know, he's gonna, he says, I'm going to vomit you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spew you out. I'm going to, you know, you say, well, that's pretty graphic imagery, Pastor. Well, you have to understand that their water supply was tainted. You know, that they were actually getting water from a certain community and it was coming down to their community, but it was a hot springs over here. By the time it got to them, it was lukewarm and it, had, it was mineralized. And if you drank it, it made you sick. You see? And then the community on the other side of the valley, in the Lycus Valley there, it had refreshing, cool water. They had to bring in their water, you know, to actually drink water in that community. So they all understood the analogy. See, we read it now and we go, you're neither hot nor cold. We go, what does that mean? What he's saying is, you know, your water supply is tainted. You know, would to God you had the kind of the heat from the hot springs water or you have this cool, refreshing water because neither, you're neither one of those things. You know, your water is so, is so bad, it makes people want to throw up. He says, that's how I feel about your condition right now. It's, it's giving me the same feeling. You're lukewarm. He's just using that as an analogy. And so we need to understand, you know, we want to have a right understanding as to our true condition. Wise and godly um, living is a call for diligence and work rather than unrealistic expectations for provisions. I think this is really important because, you know, we're living in an interesting time right now. I believe we're living, I'm going to call it, we're living in an entitled time, a consumeristic mindset. We expect something for nothing. How many know that's kind of true? And, and really, as a culture, we expect the government to take care of us, right? And I think that's a mistake. That's not, that's not really ultimately the role of the government. We need to learn how to trust God. That's who we need to look to. We need to look a little higher. Look at verse 28. It says, those who work their land will have abundant food. In other words, be diligent. Do what you can. But those who chase fantasies will have their fill of poverty. Now, a lot of people are chasing fantasies, you know, you say, what are some of the fantasies people chase? Well, pyramid schemes, on and on it goes, you know. Uh, matter of fact, it says, a faithful person will be richly blessed, but one eager to get rich will not go unpunished. Why? Because get-rich-quick schemes are usually not moral or legal. They're usually done at the expense of other people. And we th I think we need to understand that. Robert Alden says it this way, learning how to handle money is an art learned through long and slow experience. Anybody say amen to that? Unless you had really gifted parents that understood and explained to you what to do, most people learn the hard way. 
you know, those who have not learned it may find wealth is more of a burden than ever expected. In other words, sometimes people think, well, if I just had a lot of money, I wouldn't have all these problems. I'm going, no, you'd have a new set. Does anybody understand that? Because you see, when you have money, now you've got to sit down and figure out, okay, if I'm just a steward, what am I supposed to do with all this? And how am I supposed to, you know, give correctly so I don't wreck people in the process and I'm doing the right thing by the resources God's given me? You know, and how, how much should I spend on myself? And how much is too much? And how much if I, you know, what happens if I give too much to my kids and then I create that entitlement consumeristic mentality in their minds? I mean, there's a lot of challenges. We need to understand that about that. He goes on to say that I think there are a lot of other improper attitudes toward acquiring wealth. The first group are those who hoard rather than learn to trust God. It says the stingy are eager to get rich and are unaware that poverty awaits them. I think that's fascinating. They're hoarders. And last week, if you want to know a little bit about hoarding, I, I spent quite a bit of the message sharing Jesus' parable about the farmer. Remember that story if you were here last week. Then it goes down here and it says, uh, whoever robs their father or mother and says it's not wrong is partner to one who destroys. That's a powerful expression. So how do we do that? How do we rob father and mother? I think there's two ways. One, if the parents have a lot of money and now, you know, the children are expecting what the parents have, that's a wrong attitude. As a matter of fact, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say a shocking statement. If you're a child and your parents have a lot of money, if they decide not to give you one cent, they're totally entitled to do that. They could give it to a charity. But you see, once people grew up in that environment, they just assume they're going to get everything their parent has. But it's not really theirs. And sometimes people do things to secure the monies their folks had in an improper way. Lots of stories there. We could go down and talk about wills and all the rest of that. But let me just go on to say there's another side of it. What happens when Jesus brings out this story to the religious leaders who the parents have given their life to nurture their children, now they're in old age and they can't care for themselves. And then Jesus says this, you find a way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. But if you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father and mother's Corbin, that is, devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father and mother. Wow, that's pretty powerful. So I think we have to have, an, there's such a balance in all of these things. And then obviously greed is at the heart, is a hard issue that creates a relational tension. And we see the greedy stir up conflict, but those who trust in the Lord will prosper. So what is the antidote to greed? You know, I, I, I do believe in a law called displacement where I take the problem that I'm having, I do the exact opposite. For example, if I'm a greedy person, what's the opposite of being greedy? It's being generous. Okay, let me ask a question. What is God's goal in my life and in your life if you're a child of God? It's to make me like Christ, to make me like God, to make me God-like. Can I ask a question? What is God like? He's the most generous person I know. So if I want to become more like God, I have to become a generous person. So if I'm a greedy person or if I'm a stingy person, I am totally being unlike God. How's that? So I have to sit down and evaluate. Where am I at in this continuum, this continuum of, you know, where, where money is, is concerned? Am I a generous, open-handed, open-hearted person or am I a closed-fist, you know, greedy, stingy person? That's the question you have to ask for yourself. Let me go to the final realm, uh, is in relationships. Is the contrast we see in relationships. 
You know, the wise and godly live courageously rather than fearfully. Listen to what it says in verse one. The wicked flee though no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. Now, I know this is an allusion to the book of Deuteronomy where, you know, the righteous, uh, you know, can chase a thousand. And then when you're not doing the right thing, you're running from nothing. But I think the picture is just really talking about the whole issue of living in fear. And I think this is so appropriate right now because I think there's a lot of people living in fear. It's just the context has helped bring it out. Some of us either have a courageous heart or a fear-filled heart. And I like what Dr. Walke brings out. I just love this psychological aspect of living life basically free from the wrong kind of fear. He says it this way, paradoxically, because the wicked do not fear God, they live in fear of people. They live in fear of people's opinions. They live in fear of the, what people think or what they're going to say or what they might do to you, okay? Um, but because the righteous fear God, they do not fear people. These different psych- psychologies are due to their consciences backed up by threats and promises from God's word. So I think what we need to discover is that when I'm in a dynamic relationship with God, what happens is God begins to change my heart. And I move from a fear-based life. I, I move away from all of, you know, a lot of pathologies and anxieties are driven by fear. I'm going to tell you right now, that's true. And as human beings, it's amazing to me how often in the word of God we hear the word fear not. As a matter of fact, I read somewhere that there are 365 fear nots in the Bible, one for every day of the year. I mean, isn't that amazing? So we have a lot of pathologies. We have a lot of fears in our lives that drive us to do really crazy behavior. And some of it's unhealthy for us. Fear itself is unhealthy. As a matter of fact, John says perfect love does what? It casts out fear. And then I read in the scriptures that God's word says to me, be strong and very courageous. You know, be strong, be courageous. You're going, yeah, but I don't feel that way. That's not my nature. I I don't tend to be a courageous person by nature. But how many know the nature of God is courageous? You know, everything about the nature of God is, is when you understand who God is, it moves you from the realm of fear to a realm where you have confidence that God is able to handle things even though the situation and circumstances seem terrifying and difficult. Now, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about here. Think of, uh, of Goliath the giant. That's a classic story. I think even most non-Christians have heard the story of David and, the, and, and Goliath, right? David and the giant. Everyone loves that story. It's the underdog taking the overdog, but it's not what's going on there. There's something far more profound. You see, Goliath has taunted God's people on this battlefield. They had lined up for battle for how long? 40 days, which is a very significant number in Scripture, speaking of a a duration of testing. David comes on the scene. He's 17 years old. He's a teenager, But David has been anointed by God to become the future king, and David has the Spirit of God upon him. So when he comes on the scene, instead of hearing the taunt and the intimidation and the fear in which all of these Israeli soldiers are terrified, David hears something different. David sees something different than the rest of them. And what does David hear and see that's different? He sees the giant as defying not 
humanity, but defying the armies of the living God. And as far as David is concerned, here is a person who's in a state of defiance against the most holy God, and the ultimate outcome from someone that's going to live like that is death. And so David says, hey, I'll go take care of the giant. And so David, you know, we look, look at the story and think, well, yeah, but David had the crafty weapon, you know, five smooth stones and a slingshot, right? You know, how many know that's a little terrifying, running at a fully armed man, you know, and you got a little slingshot. But, you know, David says something very profound, I believe, in this situation where, where he says, you know, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord. David says, I'm not coming to you in what I can do. I'm coming to you in what God can do. You're coming against me with humanity's understanding and weaponry. I'm coming against you in the power of the spirit of the living God. This day, the Lord's gonna deliver you into my hands. Why? Because he said, you have defied the Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel. And all of those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. Is that amazing? How many think it's, a, it's, a, it's a, just a different way to live? How many say, you know what, Pastor? I have to acknowledge that fear is a dominant feature in my life, and I want to be delivered from that. I want to I share how significant this is. I think we've, we've minimized how dangerous fear living really is. You know how dangerous it is? This is what Revelation 21.8 says. These are the people who will not enter into an eternal covenant with God. Who's on the beginning of the list? The cowardly. Now, I could understand if he said the unbelieving, but he doesn't say it that way. He says the cowardly the unbelieving. I could understand the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, but the cowardly doesn't seem to fit on that list. But maybe it's an expression of our lack of confidence in the God who can deal with whatever issue we're dealing with. And so, I, you know, it's important that we address the fears in our lives. That's all I'm getting to. Let me move on here. I've just read you these texts. The second one is the wise and godly live with a teachable and understanding heart. Isn't that beautiful? Those who forsake instructions praise the wicked, but those who heed it resist them. Do you want to, you want to resist evil in our world? See, we think we've got to confront them. We've got to get in their face and start telling people what to do. You know what? You usually turn people off. Do you know the best way to confront evil? Do what's right. Do the right thing. Live the right way. When you and I live the right way, we are preaching the best sermons. We are standing, you know what? I, I, it's so interesting to me, you know, if you just stand up and say, you know what, I'm gonna do something different than that. I think I told this illustration before. You know, that we were gonna have, uh, we're gonna raise money to send our kids to us. Uh, Carnegie Hall. This was years ago. Andrea was singing in a choir. And uh, you know what? The, the default switch for all parents in the whole crazy province is gambling. Lottos, right? Come on. It's getting really quiet in here. Lottos, raffles, all the stuff, bingos, and also casinos now. That's how they wanted to raise the money. You know what I said? 
I said, I don't think this is a healthy way for these young people to raise money at the backs of people that are addicted to this problem. I said it'd be a lot better if they had to do something to actually help earn the money that's going to send them on the trip. They all looked at me like, I said, why are you parents going to go work in a smoky, dingy casino to raise this money? I said, that's the wrong approach. I said, let's make them become part of the solution and not do it for them. And so they said, well, what, what do you suggest? And so I made them, we did a benefit concert and we did a silent auction. And uh, the school actually, isn't it interesting? All the parents were going to do that until I spoke up and said the opt-in, and then they all moved over to where I was at. One person stood up, and then we shifted. And the beautiful thing was the school adopted that approach from that point on. Isn't that amazing? What did I do? I just stood up and said, here's a better way of doing that, which doesn't breed the evil that we're doing over here. You know, we're so quick to just be quiet, or not do anything, do something differently. Now, we have to get involved in that. It says here, evildoers do not understand what is right. How many know that's true? People that are evil doing, they don't get it. But those who seek the Lord fully understand it. You know what's interesting this week? I was reading in my quiet time, and in my own devotional time, I like to trade translations because... You know, I read the Bible a lot, and that's good once in a while. I just keep trading translations to see how different ones write it and then maybe go into the language and understand why did they translate that word that way. And so I was reading in the New English Translation, and it says this in Psalm 36. It says, an evil man is rebellious to the core. That's a strong way of saying it, isn't it? He says, you know, the problem is so deep, it's right to the core of our being. He does not fear God. There's the problem. You know, he's too proud to recognize and give up his sin. The words he speaks are sinful and deceitful, and he does not care about doing what is wise and right. And so the wise bring honor rather than shame upon those who love them. Proverbs 28, 7 says, A discerning son heeds instruction, but a companion of gluttons disgrace his father. And so, you know, we read this, and we don't understand that this is, remember back, shame, honor, culture. So can you imagine when you were shaming your family, you were bringing shame not only on yourself, but on the entire group of people. You were affecting many other people's lives. Our unwillingness to listen to God's instructions affects our prayers. If anyone turns a deaf ear to my instruction, God speaking, even their prayers are detestable. Now, what's really fascinating is, uh, as, as Robert Alden points out, he said, the deaf ear of verse 9 becomes more significant if we realize that the Hebrew, the, the language itself, does not have a separate word for hear and obey. Did you realize that? They just, you see, the Hebrew language is very concrete, and when it talks about the ear, that's the device that not only do you hear from, but it's when they talk about your ears, talking about it's what you're going to do. You follow what I'm saying? You're actually, you're heeding. You're not just, you're not just hearing it, you're doing it. So, in, you know, in English, we have an aphorism that goes something like this. Do you hear me? And what we mean by that is, you're not just hearing my words. Do you, do you hear me means, are you going to do what I say? Parents say that to kids. Do you hear me? What they mean is, do what I'm telling you. And that's exactly what this verse is trying to say. Um, to, to do one is to do the other. This proverb simply says that if we don't listen to or obey God, 
he won't listen to us when we pray. And doesn't that kind of back up Psalm 66, 18, where God says, if you regard inequity in your heart, God says, I'm not going to hear your prayer. So you and I have to understand something. God is very interested in having a communication and a relationship, but it's based on one that we're actually respecting God. And so to show disrespect for God's word and then to think God's going to bail us out and do things for us, wrong thinking. Well, let me move on to uh, the wise and godly address the sin issue in their lives in a right manner. And I'm going to close with this because this was so powerful to me this week. And I was thinking about this. It says here, Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Blessed is the one who always trembles before God, and whoever hardens their heart falls into trouble. Now, you know, you would think that the opposite, here's the unrighteous person, they're just committing sin and covering it, right? The godly person, you'd think, would be avoiding sin and not committing it. But that's not what it teaches here. What does it tell us? Back in verse 13, it says, whoever confesses it and renounces it. The suggestion in my mind is simply this, we all sin. And this is a big problem. You know, I get tired of people saying, well, how come people in the church do the wrong thing? Folks, because we're all, we all, yeah, we have, a, we have God's nature within us as Christians, but we also have a sinful nature. And we have a choice, and a lot of times we choose to sin. And when we do that, and then we pretend we didn't sin, and then we try to cover it up, the Bible says we're not going to prosper. The opposite is actually to acknowledge when we sin, renounce it, and find that God's mercy is there to cover our sin. Uh, it says, if we claim to be without sin, John tells us, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all that is not right. God will do that. I like what Harry Ironside says. When a man attempts to cover his own sin, he's adding to the dreadful list, for he's refusing to heed the command which goes out to all men everywhere, calling them to repent. But when God covers sins, it is done effectually and perfectly and shall never be interfered with for eternity. Isn't it amazing how God deals with our sin? I love that. So let me close. Our walk with God affects three realms of life. Our leaders and followers, how we manage our finances. Are we good managers? Are we trusting God? Or are we trusting in what we acquire in this life no matter how we get it? What's the state of our soul before God and others? Am I living a courageous life or is my life filled with fear? Do I have a teachable and understanding heart? Do I bring honor and shame to my heavenly father and the community of faith by my life? Or do I hear and obey God's instructions so that my prayers are unhindered? How do I address the sin issues in my soul? These things tell me about my soul condition. Of all of them, I have to ask, am I willing to do what's right no matter what the cost? And verse 26 of chapter 27 says, those who trust in themselves are fools, but those who walk in wisdom are kept safe. Let's stand. Powerful chapter. You know, it's, it's so easy. You know, you, you, I could spend, I probably got to spend sermon after sermon just in the one chapter here. I'm just summarizing this chapter as best I can. But how many started to recognize there's a contrast between living wisely and righteously and living foolishly and unrighteously? Everybody see that? And it affects every realm of our lives. Every realm is touched by it. And so as we close in prayer today, I want to just focus on some of the things that maybe 
that really stood out to me and maybe it really stood out to you. You know, I just think of this thing about fear. I think it's a big issue. I think it's, you know, whenever we're in a situation of extremity or difficulty or challenge, a lot of times we blame our bad behavior on the context that we're in or the situation we're in. And what we need to understand is, no, God allowed that to expose to us what's really inside of us. You go, I don't like that to hear that, Pastor. That makes me look worse. I'm going, yeah, because we are probably worse than we realize. And we need these things to be brought to light so we can do what? Confess them and say, God, I'm sorry, they're in here. I didn't know that. God goes, yeah, I'm bringing it to light now. Would you forgive me, Father? Absolutely. Would you take this away from me? Certainly. God wants to deal with our sin. How many see that? You know, instead of living in bondage, instead of living in fear, how many, you know, just with every head bow, how many here could say, you know what, Pastor, when you're talking about fear today, God was really speaking to my heart right now. I, I struggle with fear. I have, I, have, I have struggled with fears in my life. Come on, let's be honest. Raise your hand. That's you. Let's just raise our hands. If you're struggling with fear, I want to pray for you right now. I want to pray right now that the Spirit of God would come upon you, that you would not be so hung up on what people think. Some of it is that. We're, we're more concerned about what people think. Let's be more concerned about what God thinks. Amen? I'm going to pray for God's courage to flow into your life today. I want you to be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. I want you to be so courageous that you're going to, you're going to shock yourself. You're going, I was never like this before. God's changed me. Can I just say that? I have moved from being fearful myself. I know what I'm talking about over the years to becoming more and more courageous. Not that I want to be. I, I feel God's moving me. He's telling me, you got to come over here, man. you got to come right over here to where I want you to be. Amen? So, Lord, I just pray right now for my brothers and sisters who are explaining, you know what, fear has been such a defining element in their life, and there's different areas that they've been fearful of. I pray today, Lord, we confess it as a sin, number one. It's a sin. We're acknowledging that we've allowed fear to displace who you are, how great you are, and confidence in Almighty God. I pray right now that you will help us, Lord. Just fill us with your divine courage. Help us to be strong in you and in your mighty power so that when the context comes, when the circumstances and situations come, we will respond courageously and not fearfully, that you will help us to walk in wisdom and not in folly, that you will give us that kind of insight. You'll give us an understanding heart, a courageous heart, a loving heart, a generous heart, uh, uh, a forgiving heart. We just pray that you are going to be working. And I, I just believe that, Lord. You want to work on the condition of our soul. You want us to be transformed. You want us to be the light in the world. You want us to be salt in the world. You want us to hold out the hope of our world, Father. You want us to stand up in the face of evil and live right. You want us to do right. You want us to help us reveal what is right in a world that is confused and lost and broken. And I pray that you'll help us to do that in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. God bless you as you leave.